Hey, good evening. Welcome, greetings. Hello. Noir, welcome. How you doing, man? I'm hanging in there, hanging in there. Pretty smoky out there. It was pretty cool uh, to see the weather be completely orange, you know. Um, but you know what? It's it's always beautiful. It's all a matter of perspective. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome. Nice to see you again or hear you. Thank you. Thank you for uh, for holding the, um, this sort of space and 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 for uh, creating this opportunity. Cool. Okay, sorry, I was just staring at Cynthia's background. It's pretty cosmic. <laughs> Cynthia Spencer's. Uh, good evening, everyone. Let's start with our chance. Everybody have the chance? Maybe, sort of, kind of. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all our steps on the path to omniscience, may these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. Just like the six ornaments and two supreme ones who beautify our world, you are their equal in mastery of compassion, learning, and realization. Yet you practiced hidden in the forest in sacred solitude, Long Chenpa, who perfected samsara nirvana, in the state of Dharmakaya, Trina Ozer, stainless light at your feet, I pray. Grant your blessing so I may realize the natural state, the true nature of mind. So, let's see. Tonight, uh, we're on chapter two of the precious treasury of philosophical systems and tonight we have like little historical uh, we continue with the sort of historical uh, analysis and review 
that Longchampa began in terms of the life of Buddha, which had a little bit of a historical taste to it and then a, very much a sort of visionary interpretive scheme to it. And we see a somewhat similar situation here in the, in the uh, chapter on the Buddha's teachings. Starting on page 23. Now we'll discuss the nature of the sacred Dharma taught by the Buddha under three main headings, compiling the Buddha's words, the nature of the Buddha's words, and the Shastras. And thirdly, the duration of the teachings. How long is it going to last? How long will it be around? So compiling the Buddha's words, uh, we have the mantra approach, and then we have the paramita approach. The mantra teachings are those of the Bhagavad spoke, those that the Bhagavad spoke in the summit of Sumeru, in Akanishta, and at other locations. Maitreya and innumerable other bodhisattvas and so forth gathered on the south of India on a mountain called Bhima Samba. Shushri traditionally is renowned for having compiled the tantras of enlightened form, Avalokiteshvara, speech, Vajrapani, enlightened mind, qualities, and activities. The five different aspects of Buddhahood, the five uh, Buddha family qualities of body, speech, mind, qualities, and activity. The tantras compiled at this time were spoken by Shakyamuni himself transforming, sorry, manifesting as Vajradhara, as opposed to other tantras. Uh, so all those tantras whose nature was such that they were spoken countless aeons ago by the primordial guide called Samanta Vajra, Vajradhara or Vajrasattva, were not compiled at this point. So we have two different types of tantras. Those that the Buddha taught in his uh, transcendent form as Vajradhara, and those that pre-existed him, that sort of existed uh, eternally from the past through, through to the future, beginningless and endless. This was because these had already been compiled by different types of beings, Dakinis, Siddhas, Vajra holders, on the occasions when they were spoken, and so they were already in the enlightened mind of Guhyapati, who was a... Uh, manifestation of Vajrapati and preserved in the realms of the Dakinis. Generally, Vajrapati is associated with uh, preserving the, the teachings. People with little exposure to the teachings maintain their no tantras of the secret mantra approach other than those spoken by Shakyamuni manifesting on the inner level as Vajradhara during the period when the span of human life was 100 years, i.e. at the time of the Buddha, when the Buddha lived. This is not a reasonable opinion, for we find explanations such as these. And he's, he doesn't say it, but he's quoting one of the tantras of the, uh, uh, that was spoken by Shakyamuni in his form as Vajradhara. In the first stage, that of perfection, there was Kriya Tantra. So um, even in, in the tantras that... Uh, are accepted by those who don't accept the other tantras. So he's talking about there's the Nyingma tantras, the tantras of the three inner tantric systems of the Nyingma that are not accepted by some adherents of the newer schools who uh, cleave only to the tantras 
where uh, the Buddha manifests as Vajradhara and speaks those in this sort of uh, aeon. And uh, this is one of the recurring disputes between the Nyingma and the other schools where the Nyingma tradition has all these tantras that are spoken by Samantabhadra and others, primarily Samantabhadra, and are, are not included in the tantras of the newer schools, the Sarma, which we talked about, I think, before. In this saying alone, from the beginning up to the present, the great Vajradhar appearing over an inconceivable period of time in various places, taught innumerable categories. He taught in the past, in the present, and into the future. Uh, he quotes from this famous tantra called uh, Reciting the Names of Manjushri, Manjushri Namasavgiti, the first tantra in the collection of tantras. What was taught by Buddhas in the past will, moreover, be taught by those in the future. What is taught again and again is by perfect Buddhas is what is taught again and again by perfect Buddhas appearing in the present. And so another, another quote uh, stressing the same point, that uh, there are these tantras that occurred before the Buddha Shakyamuni appeared in his form as Buddha Shakyamuni spoke as Vajradhara. That's the Tantras. He gives just a little presentation, which is uh, not a, he leaves out things that are part of the tradition, such as in uh, the uh, words of my perfect teacher by Pacho Rinpoche. You see uh, a, a much more elaborate presentation of how the Tantras were compiled and brought into this world. There's a chapter on the, the history of the, of the teachings that's quite interesting uh, at the end of the Guru Yoga chapter, in case you want to check that out. The history of the advent of the early translation doctrine. Anyway, the Paramita approach, we have the famous scheme of a series of councils that happened after the Buddha's Parinirvana. The first council was characterized by nine factors, the occasion, gathering, location, supplication, etc. To elaborate, the occasion was the summer of the year after the Buddha passed into Nirvana. They spent their summer vacation compiling the teachings. It was near the city of Rajagriha in the cave of secrets of Asurava on the northeast slope of Vulture Peak, famous for being where the uh, Buddha spoke the Diamond Sutra. Where 500 arhats gathered, King Ajata Shatru was the sponsor to counter the criticism of the child of the gods, which is like some obscure reference to beings who uh, complained that the, the disciples were not uh, uh, propagating and preserving the Buddha's teachings. Uh, Ananda undertook the compilation of the sutra, so this famous scheme where uh, we have a council of exactly 500 arhats, and they choose three of those arhats to recite three di the three different uh, baskets of the teachings of the Buddha, and uh, which they have memorized. They know by heart because there's no written no written words at that point, or no written texts rather of the Buddha's teachings at that point. And the other arhats memorize them. They basically pretty much memorized most of them beforehand, but they all get like a complete set etched into their memories, into their alias of the Sutra teachings by Ananda, uh, the Vinaya teachings by Upali, and the Abhidharma by Mahakashyapa.
Thus they collected the 12 branches of the Buddha's excellent speech and grouped them into these three baskets or compilations to ensure that they would not disappear. And then he goes to, uh, he quotes from this early scripture that uh, sorts the 12 branches of the Buddha's teachings, which you see consist of things like discourses in prose and verse, prophecies, uh, verses, aphorisms, uh, ethical directives, uh, biographies, or Jataka stories, historical accounts, uh, previous lives of the Buddha Jatakas. Not sure how that differs from morally instructed biographies, but uh, extensive teachings, accounts of the marvelous qualities of enlightenment, and teachings that define phenomena. So these 12 types of teachings, this famous scheme that they have of how the Buddha taught in 12 different ways to appeal to different beings who are into different ways of experiencing or receiving teachings. And there's a second council took place in Vaishali 80 years after the Buddha's nirvana to resolve questions raised by the monk Mahadeva as to whether the following would be allowed. Now these seem like ridiculous. Uh, the propriety of reciting nonsense syllables, rejoicing, tilling the soil, using jars, using salt. And then the, in the notes, he explains these these further, and they're just sort of just sort of absurd little things. And uh, basically, the idea is that certain groups of uh, arhats and, and monks had uh, been received and then perpetuated odd little habits. And the ones they have here, uh, basically, I've seen many different versions of these uh, points of disagreement. So they're not uh, universally standardized, but the, 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 the standardization is that there's some sense of disagreement over what are called minor rules. And uh, he doesn't describe this, but this stems back to one of a uh, few mistakes that uh, Nanda, the uh, cousin and a, a main attendant of the Buddha, uh, made in his tenure as the Buddha's uh, attendant, where at one point the Buddha, toward near the end of the Buddha's life, uh, the Buddha added sort of out of the blue, they're sitting around, not doing nothing, there's no teaching happen, happening. Uh, and the Buddha says to Ananda, you know, Ananda, after I pass away, the order could dispense with some of the uh, minor offenses, uh, the minor rules. And Ananda just sort of nods, oh, okay. <laughs> and like they gave him such a hard time, like you, you ding bat, you didn't ask him which ones those were, you know, there's like 252 rules for monks. And it was not like, there was not like a specific list of minor rules. There were different sort of categorizations. So it was unclear what he was talking about. And Ananda was like in a daze and didn't ask him, you know, what does this mean? So there was this indication that, you know, you didn't need to adhere exactly to every little thing that was, uh, became a rule during the Buddha's lifetime because these rules were created in different situations that were appropriate at the time, and they, they may not always be appropriate. And uh, 
Uh, so these there were the, there were groups of monks and arhats that felt they had leeway to to change little things that were not that important. Now some of these are quite significant, and it's sort of odd that these are in the in the list here. But uh, be that as it may, at there remains this issue of there being a sort of uh, group of monks who uh, started to sort of take matters into their own hands and change things a little bit. And the majority of the monks looked down on this and said, you know, he didn't clarify what he meant. So we're going to adhere 100% to every one of them. And they gave these other guys a hard time. 700 arhats, uh, let's see, assembled in the temple of Kushmapuri in Vaishala. And the Reverend Monk Yashas, having made the supplication, the Arhat Upagupta recited the three compilations of the Sutra Vinaya Abhidharma. The sponsor was the Buddhist king Ashoka. And after the council, the four fundamental schools that had gone their separate ways during the controversy over the foregoing issues. So there was there was little uh, uh, groups of people who had different views on these minor offenses, uh, minor rules, sorry. And uh, there were four major groups of these and they had sort of become somewhat contentious. And, and there was doubt as to whether one of them was the authentic uh, teachings of the Buddha and the others weren't or not. And uh, Longchamp is giving this uh, wonderful view that at this council, they all sort of agreed that all of them were were uh, still maintaining the uh, true Dharma of the Buddha. And these four schools are the root schools of the early so-called Nikaya tradition. The Nikayas are the divisions of the sutra sections. And the uh, Vinaya sections are, are divided into groups called Nikayas. And so uh, these days, instead of saying Theravada, people say Nikaya Buddhism, N-I-K-A-Y-A. It's a little bit nicer way of referring to schools and traditions that focus basically exclusively on the teachings that are compiled into uh, the Nikayas of what is now the Pali Canon. Uh, Mulasavarstavana, Mahasangika, Staviravada, and Samatiya. The third council was convened more than 300, or actually closer to 400, he says. Years after the Buddha had passed in Nirvana, there were 500 bodhisattvas with power of complete recall. Unlike, uh, anyway, uh, 500 arhats and 16,000 monks gathered in Pushpakuta Park in at Jalandra and in Kashmir, northern India, King Kanishka was the sponsor, and the teachings were recited by Vasumitra Bodhisattva in his final incarnation. Sort of interesting. The great Arhat Purnika. Now, the, the, this account is very different. The accounts that he's given is very different from earlier accounts of these uh, councils. So, sort of. Uh, like if you're interested in this sort of thing, it's very interesting to look at the other accounts and see how things have changed by the time of Longchenpa and like the 1300s, the tradition of what these councils were, but it's not that uh, earth-shattering. Anyway, uh, the king made the supplication for the, the Sangha to uh, commence the council. And at that point, there were the famous 18 separate schools. And... Uh, 
Uh, they, again, like the four schools earlier at the earlier council, agreed that they were all genuine uh, streams of the Buddha's teaching, all 18 of them. And he leaves out there's this famous dream that this king has of a sheet being ripped into, a white sheet being ripped into uh, 18 pieces by, I think, like eight white elephants or something. And uh, this king comes and wonders what the symbolism is and asks some of the arhats. And they, and they recount that there's this... Uh, prophecy by the Buddha in one of the sutras that in the future there would be a time when there would be uh, 18 schools but they would all be they would all be uh, still maintaining the perfect dharma of the Buddha so they're all even though it's divided and torn into 18 pieces it's still presenting the authentic dharma of the Buddha Can I ask a question? Sure. Is, is the sense that the 18 that in each case of the council that every practicing group or whatever was actually represented or were there any sort of outliers that were not represented? Is there any sense of that? In this, in this presentation, it's, it's totally holistic. It's like everybody lives happily ever after, but in other accounts of this, there are groups of monks that are expelled from the order because they, they continue to fixate on uh, changing minor rules and things like that. Does that mean that they were there, but they get thrown out? As yes. A, yes. Is the sense that there's nobody that was just excluded from coming from at the beginning? Uh, that's unclear. Okay, just curious. Thanks. And he lists the different schools that are sorted. Basically, they're subdivisions of the four main schools. And they, uh, they each go back to one of the students of the of the Buddha himself. The first one is uh, all students of Rahula Bhadra, who's uh, the Buddha's son, which is odd that he doesn't mention that, but um, he would have become king of the Shakya clan as the Buddha would have if he had stayed. And uh, um, and, and they, he states for each one of these groups what language they used for their teaching, and then what, uh, how their robes were made, details about their robes, which is very important, you know, what they wore, how they dressed, <laughs> their uniform, and uh, what emblem they used. And so these guys had, uh, they had, had to have an odd number of strips of cloth, and they had the emblem of uh, water lilies, lotuses, and jewels, very nice. Then the next group uh, traces its roots back to Mahakali. Yes, ma'am. Just a very quick question. It's just, um, do you know, is um, the stuff he's describing here something that, like, nowadays historians would agree with? Do you have a sense of that? Or um, is this maybe a little, like, I don't know. It's just, it's it's interesting. It's, it's more like, uh, at this point, this version is more sort of fairy tale-ish, sort of legendary, where everything's made, like, uh, fits together very nicely and packaged and everything. But the more traditional accounts are not as uniform, you know. So there's there's uh, sub-schools of the, of the four in the traditional and the scholarly historical accounts, but they don't all have uh, the same robes. They don't all speak the same language and, you know, so 
this uh, uniformity of everybody having the same language and robes within those groups is definitely a, a later accretion. Uh, Mahakashipa, one of the main disciples of the Buddha, and these guys also have an odd number of cloth strips and they have swastikas and endless knots. And their swastikas are go in the reverse direction, as you probably know of the ones used in the middle of the 20th century for great evil. Stavirvan had three sub-schools, and they, uh, they go back to Katyayana, and uh, they speak Upper Bramsa, which was a vernacular, which is sort of interesting, uh, just sort of a language of the people sort of thing presumably indicating that they uh, were made up of uh, maybe lower castes among the caste system before they entered the order. They have a uh, conch shell. And lastly, the Samatiya, who uh, go back to Upali, who was the, the gentleman who uh, recited the Vinaya section. And they, uh, oh, like the, the prior school, they... Uh, uh, upper Bramsa is a vernacular similar, similar to that spoken by Pishacha demons, who are flesh blood eating demons. <laughs> anyway, uh, at this council, at the first council, the teachings were recalled in the minds and transmitted mentally to the Arhats while they were in a state of meditative equipoise. It's sort of like. Uh, um, uh, everybody connected to the to the network, and immediately the teachings were downloaded to their own hard drive. I think what, is what he's trying to say. And nobody spoke a word; it was all silent. I think the second council, the were the teachings were transmitted through oral recitation, and this is definitely a later accretion. This little part here, the final council, the oral recitations were written down. That is uh, agrees with the scholarly record. The uh, uh, Buddha's words and shastras will be discussed in four-part classification, and uh, of the Buddha's teachings, the classification of the shastras that comment upon the Buddha's enlightened intent, the difference between his words and the shastras, and how the, the teachings in general should be explained and received. So the Buddha's words, he goes through a whole set of uh, the characteristics of the Buddha's words. And, and this is like weird, you know, if you've never seen this, this is sort of weird. It's like, why are they talking about the Buddha's words manifest as syllables, words, and phrases? Like, what is that about? Um, and it, basically what's going on is, is they have to classify all phenomena in their scheme of dharmas. And their scheme of dharmas, you, you probably have heard like this thing called the 75 dharmas where they're mapped into different groups of matter, mind, mental factors, uh, faculties or non-associated formations. You know, so everything has to fit into one of those categories. So it's like, were the Buddha's words matter or were they mind? You know, if they were matter, how do they convey the dharma? You know, so these are major problems. <laughs> Kidding. Um, are they considered NAFs, uh, non-associated formations? Oh, different. And these, we'll see other versions of it. 
in, in the first part, he doesn't say what they are, and, and then soon he'll go through them. Uh, uh, the content is an explanation of the three exalted trainings, discipline, meditation, and wisdom, and uh, the proof lies in three kinds of cognition. There's direct valid cognition, inferential valid cognition, and scriptural authority. And the result is that which is positive or good in the beginning, the middle, and the end. This famous quote that the Dharma is good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end. That's the main tagline for the Buddhist teaching. Good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Such is the nature of the Buddhist words. We'll skip the quote. The three exalted trainings, as I said, are discipline, shila, mind, meditation, and sublime knowing, wisdom, or prajna and the three kinds of valid cognition. The basis of the terms Buddha, Buddha, the term Buddha's words, what is characterized as the Buddha's words is based on the manifestation of the enlightened speech of the teacher in the form of syllables, words, and phrases that arose in the minds of those to be guided. That is, these manifestations in the form of the verse and prose found in the sutras and tantras came about because of the interests of the audience you know the Buddha. Uh, the Buddhist teachings only come about because of the needs of being. Otherwise, they're they're without cause, just like a Buddha. And uh, so it's sort of the confluence of the the aspirations and needs of sentient beings, and the blessings or the the aspirations and vows of the Buddha when he was a bodhisattva that result in the types of teachings that are taught and what types of occasions. And uh, let's see, then he goes through... Uh, Derek, can I ask a question? Okay. Yes, sure. I said yes. I was just wondering, are, are these sort of scholastic type of debates still something that occurs today? Do people still... Um... In the Tibetan tradition, they do. They debate these things. Um, Purely this this sort of stuff purely for the sake of sharpening their intellect and learning how to think really clearly, uh, because they all have the view of emptiness. But in order to understand emptiness, you have to you have to have a very refined way of understanding in order to experience emptiness in the tradition of debating, which you're referring to the scholar scholastic tradition. You need to uh, refine a inferential knowledge, an inferential understanding through debate. And so they begin with topics that are not that relevant just as a way of sharpening the intellect. So it includes things like classifications of colors and uh, comparisons of different types of phenomena things like that. And, and so this would be a good example of it, a debate subject is like, are, are the Buddha's teachings, are they matter? You know, they're sound. Sound waves are, are form uh, in terms of uh, where they're categorized in, in the scheme of dharmas. We normally think of form as being vis visual form, but form exists as uh, uh, things that we see, colors and shapes and sounds and uh, smells and tastes and things that are touchable. 
the objects of the five senses are all forms, as well as the subtle matter that makes up the uh, sense uh, bases are all form. Uh, let's see. So it's not, not terribly relevant. Uh, let's skip to his concluding paragraph for our purposes. However, the Buddha's words can consist essentially of the manifestations of syllable words and phrases arising from the condition or the coming together of the teacher and the audience coming together. These manifestations are organized primarily by the afflictive aspect of consciousness because uh, they're meant to uh, relate to that afflictive aspect and they're assumed within the aggregates, the skandhas, of both form and formative factors, which is this translator's tra uh, translation for what other translators call non-associated or uh, uh, formations. And he gives a quote supporting his presentation from the Treasury of Abhidharma by Vasubandhu. And we have the analysis of the Buddha's words in five ways. Um, the first one is this, this uh, very traditional scheme of theirs. There's the Dharma that's realized and the Dharma that's um, understood or transmitted. So here they have scripture and realization. So scripture is the Dharma that's transmitted through written words, through spoken words. And the, the idea of having this twofold scheme is basically to, to preserve the importance of the written Dharma that conveys the ability to have realization as opposed to just focusing entirely on realization, because if you do that, then uh, the lineage of the transmission of the teachings can easily be cut off. But if you have a lot of printed, written versions of the teachings, there's more likelihood of the teachings uh, being preserved. So, Sacred Dharma, the quote on the next page, being page 30, says, the sacred dharma of the teacher has two aspects epitomized by scripture and realization. It is this and this alone that is to be upheld, discussed, and put into practice. As scripture, it's the 12 branches of the Buddhist speech, and then as realization, it comprises the spiritual levels, meaning the bhumis, the paths, the five paths, and states of meditative absorption, the eight absorptions, and realizations that are experienced by holy beings, such as stream entry, once returner, and so forth. Whether those who are still learning uh, or those who, for whom no more learning is necessary, indicating whether they're still on the first four paths of the five paths or the fifth path. The progression. There are three cycles of teachings uh, in terms of the progression. The first cycle is when one is a beginner, one's afflictive states are reinforced by the perception of a dualism that seems to exist in its own right. The normal, the normal uh, way that we currently perceive reality dualistically as if appearances exist the way they appear. Thus, there are a variety of teachings on the four truths which demonstrate primarily the process of ethical discernment, deciding what to eliminate and what to use as an antidote, what to accept and what to reject is the focus of the early cycle of teachings in order to protect the mind from the afflictive states of dualistic experience, belief in the reality of phenomena is separate. 
The intermediate cycle comprises teachings that characterize phenomena as non-existent emptiness. In order to put an end to pre uh, preoccupation with antidotes. <laughs> it's like once you've used all the antidotes and for the afflictive obscurations, then you kind of put the antidotes aside. There's no more need for antidotes. The final cycle comprises a variety of teachings that definitively ascertain ultimate truth, revealing how the fundamentally unconditioned nature of being abides. Thus, are the, these are the three cycles. So the three turnings of the wheel of the Dharma by the Buddha, according to Longchenpa, this famous scheme that he's repeating here. And in his version, the third cycle is the ultimate cycle. It's pretty clear from the way he presented it, which is not universally true in all Buddhist schools of Tibet. Uh, acumen, uh, with respect to being's level of acumen, we find that it's different approaches, Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, and the unsurpassable is for Bodhisattvas. The governing condition is uh, teachings communicated directly by the Buddha, those that came about through the Buddha's blessings and through his permission being granted. And then he goes through a long list of uh, examples of these. And uh, On that, uh, yes, please. Unsurpassed approach is that yeah. low, John? Uh, that's Bodhisattva, Bodhisattva Yana. So we have Shravakas, Pratyeka Buddhas, and Bodhisattvas. So the teachings communicated directly. He first goes through the tantras and uh, taught by the Buddhas of the five realms. And uh, uh, towards the end of this interesting paragraph where he lists all these different Buddha realms and tantras and so forth, uh, he says, similarly, Similar abodes such as the Bhaga of the Vajra Queen have the same nature as Akanishta and these other realms. These then are the teachers and the abodes of the Sambhogakaya teachings. So this is the uh, Sambhogakaya teachings. In this obscure sort of odd phrase, the Bhaga of the Vajra Queen, he mentions because most of the tantras in which the Buddha appears as Vajradhara begin with uh, stating that the Buddha was dwelling in the Bhaga of the Vajra Queen, which, as you can imagine, has a sexual reference to it as well, uh, but is uh, meant to uh, uh, explain that the Buddha was dwelling in emptiness, in the realm of emptiness. The Bhaga of the Queen is uh, represents prajna, emptiness, wisdom. And what, what does Bhaga mean on its own? The uh, womb or uh, vagina of a female. Regarding the Nirmana teachings in separate locations, the transcendent accomplished conqueror, Shakyamuni communicated these teachings in the midst of a retinue, and his enlightened speech manifested with 60 melodious qualities. Another traditional scheme that the Buddha spoke in this incredibly beautiful voice that had many great qualities. Teachings that come about through blessings, and he gives different examples of them, including, as we know, the uh, Heart Sutra, where the Buddha doesn't really say anything until the very end. He just says, hey, good job, guys. Thank you very much. <laughs> 
And that, but at the beginning, the Buddha goes into samadhi, and that samadhi creates the blessings for an interchange between Avalokiteshvara and Shariputra. Shariputra pretending not to know how to train in Prajnaparamita for the benefit of others asking Avalokiteshvara to explain that. Let's see. And then lastly, uh, teachings that came about through permission, which he gives a rather odd uh, uh, example of it's sort of a it doesn't seem like a, a a strong category in my humble opinion but anyway antidotes and their enumerations the famous scheme of the Buddha's teachings in 84,000 sections applies to uh, four sections of 21,000 groupings of teachings each each of which applies to one of the three roots first aggression, attachment, and stupidity. And then lastly, one uh, grouping of 21,000 sections that applies to all of them equally. As you see, he explains that at some length. And uh, then there's some discussion of how many, how long is a section of teachings? <laughs> it's a very important point. And uh, I love, the, what was it? There was one, explanation of uh, here uh, on page 35 of the main paragraph in the middle, the big one Nagabodhi and others maintain that it, uh, it meaning uh, a, a section or a group of teachings the size of a group of teachings a group consists of as many words of a given teaching as could be born on the back of a young elephant, not a big elephant but a young elephant, it's prime if these words were written on bark or palm leaves, the sign of silk, the writing covered both sides of the leaf without spaces between the words. And if a fraction of a hair tips was, uh, a hair's tip was used as the pen. <laughs> anyway, not terribly important, but curious, curious stuff. Uh, let's see. The term Buddha's words on page 36, moving right along. Derek? Yes, ma'am. Before we move right along, can I ask you a question about Akanishta? Yeah, which one? <laughs> well, would you just say a little bit about which one? Which I mean... As far as I can remember, and and I, I, I need to tell you from the start that I haven't got them all clear, perfectly clear in my mind, but basically there seem to be three Akanishtas. There's one... There's one Akanishta that's a Buddha realm that's outside of samsara. And then there's one Akanishta that's in the form realm of the scheme of the gods. And then I think there's a, an Akanishta that's in the god realms of the uh, desire realm. And, you know, uh, we have six realms of beings from hell up to gods. And the god realm spans from, uh, when you look at the, th you know, the word realm is used in both these cases, which is confusing, but you have the three realms. The world is divided into three realms of desire, form, and formless. And there's also the six realms of hell beings, uh, predators, animals, humans, jealous gods, and um, gods, right? And so the god realms start at the top, so to speak, of the desire realm, and then they continue through all of the form realm, and then through all of the formless realms. And so there's there's all these different levels of God realms. 
And so one of the levels of God realms is, is the Akanishta in the world of form, which he mentions a number, number of times that he's talking about the Akanishta in the realm of form. And when he talked about the Buddha's enlightenment, he made a point of saying, I think, that the Buddha was enlightened outside of, from the unsurpassable approach, without enlightened outside of samsara, outside of all three realms, and the Akanisha that resides outside of it as a Buddha realm. And then I think there was something like, then he manifested in the Akanisha in the realm of form. And then from there he took birth. Something like that. So which of those three is where the Bhaga of the Vajra. Um, so he said, which where where which which would that fall into? That that's a Sambhogakaya situation. He says these then are the teachers and abodes of the Sambhogakaya teachings, and so, so is that like the middle one? Sambhogakaya is in enlightened. They're enlightened Buddhas, so they're not in samsara. So they're outside of samsara. They're in Buddha Buddha realms. So samsara, you know, let's say samsara is a circle and it has the, or a cone, you know, that's often presented as like a cone shape where there's lots of hell beings and then lots of predators and lots of animals and less humans, way less humans and way less jealous gods and wet, and then way less gods. And the gods go all the way up spanning the, the three worlds of desire, form and formless. And then Outside of that, you know, in a different whole scheme are Buddha realms, all sorts of Buddha realms uh, in all directions and interpenetrating this world system. They're just everywhere. They're, they're not in space or time, so they have no real location. So the Bhaga of the Vajra Queen is a non-locatable location. Okay. Is that word related to the word Bhagavat? Um. Uh, I don't think so. I think it's a different spelling. Okay. Because I thought that, that was my original thought, and then obviously it went in a different direction. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't have diacritics on it, but uh, it, uh, there was something in the notes about the, the word Bhagavad. So let's see. It was in from last week. Where he explains the term Bhagavad and how it's it's used to gloss the word, the as an expanded translation of the word Buddha. I think it was at the beginning of the. It was the first note of this week's reading. I think. Yeah. Yes, that's right. It was actually, and it gave the um, Tibetan words that went along with it, which was Kom Dan Das or something. I don't know how to pronounce them. There was basically three parts. So um, an epithet of Shakyamuni Buddha, Buddha Shakyamuni. So it's no two of chapter two. And so that goes back to the start of the chapter, wherever that is. Um, yeah, page 23, the mantra teachings are those of the Bhagavad spoken the summit of Samira and Akanishna and other locations. And he's saying uh, an epithet of the Buddha Shakyamuni or any Buddha, Bhagavad means fortunate one or glorious one has often been translated as blessed one. The equivalent Tibetan term, it's pronounced Chom Den De 
That's pretty obvious, right? Chum Din Day. Carries a. The Buddha's one, it was conquered, Chom. It's actually cool, this this term. That's why he goes to it. So he's conquered the forces that bind with samsara, has accomplished or gathered excellent qualities, Din, and has transcended day, has passed beyond the limitations of samsara and uh, individual nirvana, a limited nirvana. Um, Bhaga and Bhagavat. No, that's a good question. I will I will try to remember that and get back to you on that. Let's see. Uh, the term Buddha words on the top of thirty-six. What is spoken by a supreme and sublime being, spoken for the dual purpose of ensuring short-term and ultimate benefit of beings. And he gives this quote to accomplish the two kinds of benefit for being as the words of the Bhagavad were proclaimed with a lion's roar in the midst of his retinue. Famous term, the lion's roar, famous analogy that a Buddha speaks with a lion's roar. And this comes from the earliest or so-called Nikaya teachings where there's a, a, at least two sutra called the lion's roar of the Buddha. And uh, it's sort of interesting that uh, if you if you read those, the Buddha appears to be a rather arrogant. He's like boasting of his his accomplishment in a rather arrogant way. And the idea is to sort of um, uh, drive home the fact that he is completely fully enlightened in all ways. And and. Because it's such an amazing thing, there sh- there should be not one should not have any sort of sense of uh, needing to hold back about it, but one should be uh, happy to proclaim the qualities of Buddhahood. Anyway. It reminds me of the thing that we read in the introduction, where he's sort of like, "Drink from the nectar of my reign of wisdom," or whatever. Yeah, that's right. Longchenpa has a similar, in Longchenpa's case, we would call it sort of Vajra arrogance, Trump Rinpoche would call it, of, of a, an arrogance of like the the reality and the preciousness and the greatness of the Dharma and of the Buddha. And uh, we think of, you know, we ha- I just repeated this term, Trump Rinpoche, he was a Vajra arrogance, but it's right in the earliest teachings of the Buddha where you, you think of the Buddha as being this sort of humble guy but he's really boastful in a, in a certain way. It's sort of odd to me. But yeah, Longchenpa does the same thing. Do you think it's partly because of the context that there were so many different like spiritual um, I trips think, going on and that you there was a need to like proclaim yours just to differentiate in some way? I, I think so, but you know, even still, People, you would think people would be like, "Oh, he's sort of full of himself." Sure, it is weird. <laughs> but you know, when you when you encountered him in person, he was pretty amazing. To most people, thought he was pretty amazing. You now there are little stories about, like after his enlightenment, he meets this one person, and they they just say like hello, and they pass, and the guy you know has no hit of you know he just met the Buddha. <laughs> Anyway, the Shastras that comment on the Buddha's enlightened intent uh, is discussed under two headings, the qualifications of the masters and the nature 
of the Shastras they wrote. The ideal author was someone such as Nagarjunari, Deva, or Sangha, who perceived the truth that is the nature of phenomena of reality. A lesser kind of author is someone who has been graced with a vision of a chosen deity, and so received permission to write. Chandra Goman and Shanti Deva were examples. They're famous for having uh, been visited by um, uh, Avalokiteshvara, I believe, and uh, Manjushri, respectfully, and thereby were blessed by the bodhisattvas of uh, supreme compassion. Oh, I guess maybe both of them were from Avalokiteshvara. At the very least, the author, someone like the master Sri Gupta, Garba or Shakyamati should have been learned in the five traditional fields of knowledge and have received instructions on teachings deriving from a lineage of gurus. And in the notes, he goes through the five traditional, no, but right here, sorry. Five traditional fields of knowledge comprise the outer subjects, grammar and valid cognition, the inner, such as the three compilations, presumably the Shila uh, Samadhi Prajna, the, the Dharma, the arts, including those of constructing uh, temples and painting images of deities, the medical sciences, uh, which are discussed in these famous texts, eight branches and Somaraja, and areas of expertise such as uh, the eight secular skills, which involve classifying the characteristics of men, women, mountains and forests, lakes and springs, clothing design. <laughs> Gemstones, horses, and elephants. Okay, <laughs> that's an example of instruction that derives from the lineage is found in uh, this text. Well, he gives this quote, etc. Those who are, uh, the next paragraph, those who are thus learned in the different fields of knowledge and have gained accomplishment are innumerable, but the main ones, the most famous ones, are the six ornaments and the eight sublime ones, who are like the sun and moon or like precious gems. The six ornaments are Nagarjuna, Asanga, who are also known as the two chariots, Vasubandhu, Asanga's brother and chief disciple, Dignaga and Dharmakirti, famous logicians, and uh, Gunaprabha. Has anybody done an updated list? <laughs> I was thinking somebody must have. Gunaprabha is famous Eden. for his uh, text on the Vinaya. And the eight sublime ones include the foregoing with three figures added. Uh, Arya David Chandra Goman and Vera. Vera, as uh, we later learn, is Arya Shura, who wrote a biography of the Buddha. And uh, they omit Dignaga for some reason in that list. Anyway, the nature of these Shastras uh, is presented by him in five ways the characteristics and uh, this whole section was not that fascinating, I thought. Uh, they were written by authors qualified to comment on the enlightened intent of the Buddha's words, fulfilled two functions of correcting the teachings and protecting the teaching. Correcting. Um, correcting the enemies. Whoever corrects the enemies afflictive states without exception and protects one against noble, ignoble states of existence. So instead of correcting and protecting the teachings, it's correcting and protecting beings with these teachings. 
That is the, whatever does that is a Shastra. These two qualities of correcting and protecting are not found in other traditions of, of texts. Uh, characteristics, not very interesting. Analysis, um, let's see, specifically, so the, the uh, an analysis of the Shastras demonstrates that their sources are found in the three compilations. So basically, the content of the Shastras maps to the three uh, uh, the three baskets or the three compilations, what he's calling compilations of uh, Vinaya, Sutra, and Abhidharma. Let's see. And then on page 38 in the middle, composed in this way, the Shastras have been assigned to the individual categories of Vinaya, Sutra, Abhidharma, and Secret Mantra. They are, moreover, devoid of the six mistakes, flaws, found in non-Buddhist treatises and have three qualities that are characteristically Buddhist. And he lists this through these quotes. They're not meaningless nor erroneous or two of the flaws, and uh, they are endowed with meaning as one of the positive qualities. They're not theoretical or contentious, but concerned with spiritual practice. And they're ad they advocate neither deceit nor lack of compassion, but eliminate suffering. So these are the six flaws and the three positive qualities. And he gives examples. Treatises that are not ultimately meaningful are works like the four Vedas. Ouch. Treatises that are erroneous maintain that freedom can be attained through such philosophical views as realism and nihilism. So they're just downright wrong. Treatises that are merely theoretical works um, are works, sorry, are works on poetics and the like, just mere theory. Those that are contentious are works of logic and so forth. Those that advocate deceit are works on military strategy, like the art of war, and related subjects. Treatises that advocate a lack of compassion are those that profess, for example, that the sacrifice of cattle is spiritual practice, and thus are harmful to oneself and others. Treatises found in the Buddhist tradition are devoid of these six negatives and have three positive qualities. They discuss the important topic of bringing about happiness in the short and term and freedom ultimately, as well as the attainment of enlightenment and so forth. Derek, isn't yeah. pramana logic? I mean, how does that square with pramana? Well, he's given a traditional view, which is that logic is, is not uh, essential. And it's unclear whether he cleaves to that view himself or not. But um, there are others like Chandra Kirti put down logicians. He said, that's just a waste of time. You're just uh, tying knots around your mind. You don't need to study logic. But um, the later tradition of Tibetan Buddhism then adopts the use of logic as a very skillful means for understanding the nature of reality. Be, uh, primarily Tsongkhapa makes a big push towards using logic. And then we see that lasting down the centuries such that uh, great teachers like Mipam uh, also continue that stream of, 
uh, of uh, considering logic to be a very helpful, skillful means on one's path towards understanding the nature of reality. But the traditional view was that logic was uh, a waste of time. Is that because of Nagarjuna? Yes, Nagarjuna Chandrakirti. And uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, it's partially because the practice of logic that they're talking about was sort of an extreme type of logic that that uh, di diverged into or uh, sort of uh, uh, lost itself in uh, the inanity of minutiae, minutiae. Like the uh, why is why are uh, the peacock's feathers? have colors on them and why you know why is the grass green and the sky blue and why do crows not have teeth or how many teeth the crows have are the, are the sort of traditional versions of this let's see there's a chat ah Lori Yango had to say goodbye thank you uh, let's see the second the second paragraph has an important thing in it. Uh, the one that starts with text can include chapters, detailed analysis, aphorisms, or subdivisions. First few sentences are not that interesting. But then the last sentence says, by analyzing the Buddha's words from four perspectives, this is very important, is that uh, one needs to analyze the Buddha's teachings in order to understand them properly because they present very different versions of ultimate reality of practices and the path and so forth and the, and the result now the first scheme really this he, he says four perspectives but there's really two schemes that have each two options and the first is understanding which teachings present provisional meaning and which te which teachings of the buddha or Shastras present definitive meaning. And uh, there's different ways of understanding the provisional and definitive, but uh, generally the, the scheme is that uh, definitive teachings prevent, present the ultimate nature of reality, and provisional teachings present the relative nature of reality. And then there's the next scheme of either uh, teachings that are straightforward or literally uh, or literal, convey their meaning in a literal fashion, or teachings that require interpretation, that are presented in a sort of um, um, uh, in a guise that's related to the situation and the players in the situation. So on a particular occasion, the Buddha may say one thing because of that particular situation, which he may not say in a different situation because of the situation. So he may say, he may have two different comments or two different views of the same or responses to the same question because of the situation. And so to take them literally would be, uh, you would come up with the Buddha contradicting himself. But in that case, we need to interpret them and, and understand that the Buddha in one instance gave one response because of the situation, because of the players involved in their their situation and so forth. Derek, can I um, jump in here? The uh, This seems to go along with the earlier 
point that the teachings arise as a result of the interaction of the Buddha and the students, not in either of them separately. Right. And it, it seems like this would have a lot of interesting implications for like how to decide if you were, um, like if two people disagree, it's sort of, they could each be having their own version that is correct for them. Like it seems to introduce a, the possibility of a, of a type of relativism or something like that, or, or just like, um, skillful means that there can be a, a difference in, in what, uh, in, in what is presented as the ultimate teaching. And based, lots of the sangha though, maybe. <laughs> say that again? Maybe lots of arguments in the sangha about what's correct though, because each of them has their own version of it. And, you know, I feel like you can see this. Everyone has their own idea of what the right thing to do is. And um, yeah, they all claim to be divinely inspired, so to speak, or like that they have the, you know, they correctly understood some different aspect of the thing. Totally. This is the, this is the very heart of the disagreement between the different schools of uh, Buddhism in India and Buddhism in Tibet, where uh, there's some sutras that present ultimate reality in one way and some schools that present it in another way. And uh, they adhere to different texts that present different views, versions of ultimate reality. And it boils down to that scheme of the three cycles of the Buddha's teaching. Is emptiness the ultimate teaching, or is, uh, let's see, the way he described it was... It was like the nature of ultimate reality or something? Yeah, yeah that just definitively discern, ascertain ultimate truth, revealing how the fundamentally unconditioned nature of being abides. So that's the third turning, and uh, so basically, there's two different ways of understanding Madhyamaka in Tibet, known as Rongtong and Jintong, and they uh, they they don't really get along very well. The Rongtongpas and the Jintongpas, because the Rongtongpas take the second turning as being ultimate, being definitive, and the Jintongpas take the third turning to be definitive. So there's this whole uh, body of teachings around interpretation. How do we interpret the Buddhist teachings? How do we understand them? And uh, uh, because uh, this whole, the variety of the Buddhist teachings leads to these different points of view. And, and maybe because we have this, um, because of this idea that it's skillful means, there's the possibility of not getting into an argument about it because you understand you have this sort of two truths, you know, this is the raft to get you across to the thing that's not a raft kind of idea going on. I don't know, but obviously it doesn't always work out that way. Yes, you know, uh, I, I won't name which ones, but uh, one of those groups of people uh, don't view the teachings in the way you just said. They sit, They are very sort of hard and fast that there's one body of teachings that's ultimate and that's it. And then the other group is more flexible and says, well, the the ultimate teachings vary depending upon what situation you're in, where you are in the path, and so forth. I was going to say that it could be very humbling because 
if you consider it from that point of view, then it's just where you are at a particular point in time and not that there's this solid um, teaching out there that, you know, is just the solid thing. Yeah. It's, and it's very nuanced. And the, the, the famous uh, exhortation of the Buddha to uh, not accept his teachings on face value, but analyze them, investigate them, apply them and see what works and why and how and, and really figure out what's true for yourself. Not just take it on, on authority. Oh, this came from the Buddha, so it must be true. Because the Buddha, if you if you look at all the teachings of the Buddha, they are contradictory. So what are you going to do then? Does that also tie back to what you talked, what we, he referenced in the earlier part about the two aspects of the Dharma of scripture and the Dharma of realization that ultimately what bring, you know, what manifests as realization is what counts. And the vast different skillful means are, you know, all part of the scripture, but it's the realization that ultimately matters. I guess so. Yeah, that, that that's right. That there's the written teachings, which have these problems, but uh, the realization should eliminate the differences. And I say should, <laughs> because they, they, they still seem to disagree on levels of attainment of different types of beings. <laughs> it seems like it has to do with how vast the mind can actually be, you know, whether you get hung up on it or not. That's right, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, let's see. The, the remainder of this section on the Shastras were not not all that uh, helpful, I thought. Let's see, we have, I'm going to skip to the characteristics of the master. Um, who explains the teachings are given in the ornament of the sutras, rely on a spiritual mentor as disciplined, calm, chill, peaceful, endowed with qualities of enlightenment with diligence, has received a wealth of transmissions, and has totally realized suchness, possesses eloquence, embodies kindness, and has cast off discouragement, i.e. Longchenpa, Durabjampa, and uh, the characteristics of a student devoted to a mass spiritual master, completely pure in moral conduct, extremely diligent in practicing meditative stability, reciting texts, focused discipline, patience. Such a one is truly said to be a practitioner who maintains the precepts diligently. Uh, typically, on the bottom, it's the nature of a spiritual activity to have a threefold structure of preparation, giving rise to bodhicitta. This is the, the traditional scheme of all practices, is that there's a preparatory section. And usually they include refuge in this, but he does not. But ref, uh, bodhicitta, the principal practice, uh, retaining the meaning of what, is, of what one has heard. So in other words, like meditating on the meaning that you've heard and understand is the essence of of practice. 
meditating on the meaning that one has heard and understood. And then conclusion, dedicating the practice to the enlightenment of all. And uh, on the next page, he gives the difference between sutra and tantra, versions of these approaches. And then he said on su says on such occasions, there's calm abiding for consciousness rests without distraction in a one-pointed state of attention to the words and underlying meaning of the teachings. And there's profound insight for one distinguishes the words from their underlying meaning and comprehends that meaning. So, uh, what he's trying to, what he's, he's saying in an oblique way is that the this main part of the practice involves understanding the meaning that, meditating upon the meaning that one has heard using shamatha, calm abiding, and uh, vipassana, profound insight meditation. Benefits from the teachings, uh, one becomes a good person and uh, of benefit to other beings and one liberates oneself from one's obscurations. Basically over and over again, that same message. Um, and he goes on at quite some, some length about this. And to sum up on page 45, the last two paragraphs, he says the Actually, the, the starting from the top of that page, therefore it's imperative not to disparage teaching of any kind by saying this is wrong, it's counterfeit or bad, because they serve beings with various interests and the various manifestations of individual teachers and teachings, each ensure benefit in their own way. That He's talking about Buddhist teachings, though, not the wrong teachings like the Vedas, by the way, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> might object, but the Buddha said, just as gold is fire cut and polished, you must examine my words well, and only then should you accept them, not just out of respect. How does one explain this quotation? The Buddha's intention in saying this was to point out that when one studies teachings that are personally inspiring, one should hone the sublime, sublime knowing, which is this translator's translation for prajna, that arises from contemplation of the words and their underlying meaning to determine whether one's understanding is mistaken, i.e. or not. This does not mean the scriptures say the Buddha was advocating that one entertain doubts as to the truth of these or any of his other teachings. To summarize the Buddha's teachings encompass all the methods associated with the path that leads one to renounce samsara and to endeavor to attain nirvana. Whatever these methods are called or however they are described, I advise you not to be adverse to or reject them. Such methods have already been described in the passage cited earlier. Whatever has ultimate connection and inspires a close connection to spirituality, etc. Therefore, the value of hearing teachings can be seen to be that of gaining mastery of the methods. Then he goes into this interest, somewhat interesting presentation of how long did the Dharma teaching to the Buddha's last? And if you're a chronologist or a mathematician, or historian, you might enjoy this section. I don't know what a chronologist is, but I just sort of made that up. Somebody who's into time or something. I don't know. So, how long the teachings will endure is uh, there's an ordinary tradition and the extraordinary tradition. Uh, let's see. The Sutra Fortunate and uh, uh, the something uh, 
Vajra Sutra and the minor scriptural transmissions state to last for a thousand years. So there's all these different versions, scriptural sources that have all these different numbers for how long the Buddha's teaching is going to last. So basically what, what he's talking about is that the Buddha in a number of occasions during his lifetime in, in the earliest sutras up through the Mahayana sutras said on various occasions, said, my teachings are not going to last forever. They're going to, they're going to die out. And the scheme is that his teachings are going to last for a period of time and they're going to become progressively less powerful and less widespread until eventually they fade out completely. And then there's going to be a gap period where there's no Dharma for some long period of time. And then the next Buddha, Maitreya, will appear and introduce the Dharma again. That's the general scheme, but there's all these different presentations of of how long that situation is. But first, there's one that says my dharma will last a thousand years, and there's two thousand years, and there's uh, five periods of five hundred years, which I think is twenty five hundred years if I can do my math correctly. And another one says five thousand years, and uh, he gives some comment on these. Uh, two versions, but my explanation, i.e. Long Chenpa's the first full paragraph of 46, here is based on the last figure. By dividing each of the five millennia in half, we arrive at 10 periods of 500 years each. Uh, because Prajapati and other women received monastic ordinations of Prajapati was the Buddha's aunt or aunt however you like to pronounce that, and uh, the Buddha's mother died in childbirth and his aunt raised him. And at one point in her life, in his life, she pleaded with him to let women enter the order. And he kept saying no. Uh, it would not be appropriate to do that. And uh, finally, he got she got uh, Ananda to appeal on her behalf their behalf. And there was a scheme, There's, there was this idea that if you asked the Buddha something three times, he would have to accept it. He would have to say yes. Which is an a, a odd scheme. I mean, it's like, so can you ask him like anything? And if you, as long as you ask him three times, he has to say yes. It's sort of weird, but anyway, that was what how they presented. Anyway, because women were entered into the order, the t duration of the Dharma is going to be less than it would have been otherwise. You know, the general misogynistic uh, scheme of Buddhism and, and uh, basically humans on earth in general, or male humans, I should say. Excuse me. Um, so the final period of 500 years will be one of mere outer signs known as the decline of the 10 periods, and there'll be three periods of 500 years that constitute fruition, and he goes through the scheme, counting for 10 periods, basically coming up to 4,500 years is his objective. And uh, he explains what these different periods mean in, in terms of some of the details of uh, realization and uh, scriptural transmission. Skip into the next paragraph. Given these 10 500 year periods, in which time are we now? That's the most important question, right? It's like, what's going on now? <laughs> We're living in the time of spiritual practice because there are many ordinary people who feel intensely disillusioned by some sort of yearning to attain liberation, etc. 
Now, if you wonder how many years have elapsed from the Buddha's Nirvana to the male, fire male horse year, which if you look in the notes, is some, something like, I don't know, 908 uh, common era, if I remember correctly. I skimmed it sort of quickly. Uh, 3,516 years have passed. Now, this is totally different than Western chronological history, as you know, because we, we always say it's about 2,500 years since the time of the Buddha. And so he's looking at a period of time that's over 1,000 years ago and saying it's already 3,500 years ago, which would mean that we're now at the end of the 4,500-year period. I think it actually ended yesterday. It, it ended the day Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, I think, basically. Yeah, I was going to say it. I think it was last week. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. This means the teachings will last for another 984 years. And he goes through all these, compl these uh, calculations. And it's funny, the... Uh, the uh, He's not alone in doing this. Like many Tibetan teachers spend a lot of effort and time doing these odd uh, time calculations. Even like Dujum Rinpoche and his huge masterpiece, The History of the Nama Tradition, where he gives a very long history of the development of uh, Buddhism in India and Tibet, in addition to the Nama Tradition. He goes through this very convoluted, a way of analyzing, like, how long has it been since the Buddha died, and how long is it going to last, and so on and so forth. They're just, like, obsessed with uh, the calendar and time. And uh, that's why the Kala Chakra Tantra, which is all about the calendar and time, took, uh, made, it, made it big in Tibet to say we're all into that stuff. And so it became very popular. Anyway, he goes on, as you see, this whole page, naming all these people. We have no idea who they are. And then the other thing is that they give, they, they use the Chinese uh, uh, calendar, astrological calendar system, where you have these 12 uh, cosmic animals. What do you call them? The 12-something animals. And then there's, a, there's an element for each of them. And uh, then there's... Uh, male and female and they don't they don't give the uh, they do fire female air year fire male horse year and they all somehow know what year that is whereas those years you know the the, the chinese astrological calendar has a 60 year cycle where you have each combination of an animal 12 animals times five elements is 60 years if you add the male female i guess you get 120 years but which 120 year period are we talking about and for somehow for them it's sufficient to place the the time period it's like very bizarre miraculous scheme that these guys have anyway uh you know, to cut to the chase on the, uh, at the bottom of the page, he's concluding that he lives at the time that's about 3,500 years after the Buddha, and that there's about a 1,000 years left. So he, he lived in the 1300s, 
So that means that a couple hundred years from now, it's, it'll be it, be over. So. Well, that sounds about right. We should be extinct right about that point. Yeah, another couple hundred years, the planet will basically dissolve. <laughs> Men will have just totally trashed the place. Anyway, on the next page, um, we have the extraordinary tradition. And here, the Buddha will never pass into a part nirvana, the teachings, nor will the teachings ever display, uh, disappear. Sorry, I merged that with the next text that quoted, that's quoted, the magical display. The teach, nor will the teachings dis disappear. And uh, for as long as the great multitude of beings continue to exist, for that long will emanations of Buddhas be uninterrupted in the teachings that free beings not disappear. So the alternative approach is that they're going to continue forever. Whatever forever means. Uh, let's see. I, I, uh, Derek, I really thought on page 49, that whole, uh, um, it was quite beautifully uh, Let's presented. Yeah. Yes. The reflection of the moon and the different types of vessels. And when a nirmanakaya sage passes away, it's like the reflection of the moon disappearing from water. But the sambhogakaya dwelling in Akanishta. <laughs> now, which Akanishta is this, Longchenpa? Can you please, like, be clear, for God's sake, who's ever present like the actual moon. Whenever there are beings with devoted interest and good fortune who are akin to vessels of water. <laughs> beings are just like vessels of water. An appropriate, he was foreseeing that we were all going to be obsessed by our water bottles in the future. An appropriate emanation together with teachings that guide by whatever spiritual approach is necessary, spontaneously present. Whether for one being to be guided or 100, whether for a single continent or a 3,000-fold universe. And did, did you guys read the note on the, what a 3,000-fold universe is from, I think, last week or so? A 3,000-fold universe means that first there's a 1,000-fold uh, universe, which means there's a collection of a 1,000 universes. And then you have a 1,000 thousand universes, which is like, I don't know, 10 million or something. And then you, you have a thousand, thousand, thousand universes, which is like some billion, huge trillion number anyway. Um, according to the perceptions of any number of beings, these emanations occur in a way that is not dependent on time. This is analogous to the arising of as many forms of the moon as there are vessels of water without these reflections having any prior or later existence. They're all just illusory manifestations based on the causes and conditions of there being a moon. and the, They didn't even know that the light of the sun shone off the moon. They, they thought the moon had its own light. But anyway, uh, you know, we, it doesn't really change the analogy of uh, the, the causes and conditions coming together to produce uh, uh, image of the moon and the water. It's just like sentient beings, just like Buddhas, are purely based on these causes and conditions coming together. And uh, although these emanations and teachings may seem to appear and disappear in beings' perception, they actually do not arise or disappear. So Trump Rinpoche was never here. The Buddha never existed. He never spoke any Dharma to anyone at any time, any place. And uh, for they are similar to reflections or dream images. One who thoroughly appreciates this principle is known as a spiritual person of the highest degree. 
In conclusion, let me offer you a nice little poem. In a lake of limpid blue water appear reflections of planets and stars which beautify it with their radiance. Uh, actually, someone else read this. Who wants to read this? Who's, who's Anne? Is Anne still here? Anne has gone. Uh, Emily, you read this for us, will you? Uh oh, you got to get up and uh, unmute. <laughs> Sorry. I just have to go away from the baby's room. Okay, I'd be happy to read it. In conclusion, let Emily offer a few us a few verses. In a lake of limpid blue water appear reflections of planets and stars which beautify it with their radiance. But though these reflections manifest, planets and stars do not actually arise, nor do they disappear because of turbidity. Thus, analogous to the orb of the moon is the sovereign Lord, constant, pervasive, and unchanging, resplendent in the abode of Akanishta. What adorn the pristine waters of beings' minds are forms that will be discerned in different ways by all beings as a result of their amassed merit, their excellent devotion and virtue. The teachings of victorious ones and the multitudes of the noble Sangha then come into being by the power of the Shugata's deeds. These wish-fulfilling teachings are all-pervasive like the sky, and there the massing clouds of innate compassion will abide for a long time. You're muted, Derek. Oh, sorry. I thought I clicked it off. So that's the second chapter. And we have five minutes left for comments, questions, or like uh, if there were any very interesting footnotes that anybody wants to comment or point out, comment upon or point out, or ask a question of. I have a question. And the footnotes. Jeez, I'm sorry. Go on. Um, I just am trying to understand um, all this information he's compiled here is all of this stuff that other people were also saying too, and a lot of people were aware of, or is this, were readers or, or people who heard this at the time, was a lot of this new information to them? Is some of this stuff that he kind of was the first person to put down, or is, was this all kind of generally known? Uh, this this was a, a scheme. These two chapters, uh, the view, different views of the Buddha, and then the way of understanding the different categories and qualities and interpretations of the Buddha's teachings, uh, seem to be in vogue between him at, at that time and other teachers. There, there's these two other texts that I mentioned that do the same thing. This History of Buddhism in India by Bhutan, who lived right around the same time. And then uh, this book called Fundamentals of the Buddhist Tantrika Systems by uh, one of Tsongkhapa's main disciples, Kedru. And uh, so it seems like um, Longchenpa felt that uh, he's he's sort of writing like a textbook for his lineage, 
to help people in his lineage know about the Dharma in general. And then in specific, you know, if you've looked through the book, it really drills deeply into the Nyingma and Dzogchen version of the, the traditions. And uh, so he's, he's doing like this, this what, what it seems that, uh, to be a common um, uh, sort of review of uh, essential aspects of the Dharma. Uh, it seems like at that time there was this idea that anybody who uh, was becoming a serious student of the Dharma should know a certain uh, a sort of set of information about the Dharma. And so he's presenting that in, uh, in a similar way that others have, as well as adding his imprimatur to it, his, his view his way of understanding these different interpretations. And, uh, we didn't have time, but I was going to like uh, compare them to the other versions. And the other versions, um, you know, there's little slants, like the way he presented the three turnings of the wheel of Dharma differs between them. That's a huge one. And then the others, um, Bhutan in particular, uh, lists has huge numbers of texts. He just lists endless texts and endless teachers. And uh, he gives little biographies of the major, of like a number of uh, Indian pundits, which is really actually very helpful that he does that. There's also a, a book much later um, by Taranata that does a similar thing. But it's, it's sort of amazing that there's these three books uh, that happen at the, at the very same time. So it does seem like there was a feeling that in order to know the Dharma, this was sort of your uh, curriculum. What else? So that, that bit at the end, oh, I see it's gotten quite dark here. Um, that bit at the end, where he's talking about how everything is like an illusion, like a dream, like a, um, <clears throat> I've often thought that there's, there's a bit of like a dissociative streak in some of these practices and some of the ways of viewing things. Um, and I, so I wonder about the approach, like, it seems like it would have to be like a very advanced approach where you already were so stable that then you could regard everything as illusory without like losing your seat sort of. Um, but sometimes these, what seem like sort of advanced approaches get sort of tossed out. And I, I just wonder whether that's like contemplating things in that way is helpful or unhelpful for people who are not on the verge of enlightenment. That's a, that's a great question. Um, th there seems to be a, a very, uh, large or or vast and also profound difference between the sort of uh, emotional background of students in India and Tibet versus in the West. And a number of teachers, Tibetan teachers that have come here have talked about this um, where the uh, in the West, individuals um, People, there's a like a sort of widespread uh, uh, feeling of unworthiness 
and uh, low self-esteem, low self-image, self-loathing in the West. And uh, these sort of dissociative teachings, as you so uh, helpfully, I think, called it, are not very, are, are not at all helpful for beginners, not at all helpful for beginning, maybe even intermediate students. They can, they can produce a sort of uh, further uh, dis dissociation and depression and uh, sort of like just losing reference points. And so we see that it's, it's uh, very widely prevalent in Buddhism in the West now where, where the majority of books that you see don't present this type of, uh, this way of understanding the Dharma. There's like so many books on um, uh, basically self-care, Dharma as self-care has has basically become the major theme in books that are put out if you look through books on buddhism in the bookstore on amazon or barnes and nobles or or uh, whatever source you look for it's just one after another book on you know um, using mindfulness to um, sort of stabilize your emotion emotional uh situation in your personality whereas in the east it's like they didn't seem to have this problem and they seem to have the other problem of sort of being too established in their sense of self too smug too comfortable and uh, so these teachers are just immediately you know pushing them into outer space into this realm of you know egolessness and everything's a dream and we're all just uh, reflections of the moon and vessels of water <laughs> anybody else have any comment on this it's a really interesting uh, uh, observation. Yeah, um, kind of in the West, I think we've lost touch with the teachings of suffering. You know, if you actually look at the Bible and other things like that, that was a big part of it, but we seem to want to get away from it. Like, Interesting way of absolve me, please. I just want to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's signing up to be Job. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, especially in the Old Testament. Interesting that you you go back to the Bible on that one. That's cool. Anyone else have any thoughts on this? I think I've been ex um, experiencing a little bit of what you're talking about. Um, where especially if I have like a few days, it's off on the weekend where I'm doing like a ton of reading and sitting on on like WMC classes all day on Sunday. And um, I feel like really, really in it. And I'm feeling really in this, like, I feel like I'm really um, experiencing uh, egolessness and I'm like really connecting with it. And then that'll last for like a day. And then some, sometimes I'll have, it feel, I think it's like the, my ego, like, charging back in and it feel I have like a I'll have like a little bit of a freak out you know or like a um like crashing back down to earth a little bit and so I I don't know if that's I feel like that's my personal experience with what you're talking about and I know I just have to like push through it but it can be kind of uh I can go from being like really feeling great about it all to all of a sudden like like uh plummeting a little bit 
Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great description of the of the experience of it. Um, I think Chungpa Rinpoche and others have said that Westerners, you know, our level of intellectual capability compared to most people in the East. Um, uh, sorry, I shouldn't say capability. Our our level of intellectual development is generally much higher in, in that uh, we're all very well educated. And the the education that the monks got in their their uh, monastic university system was really for the elite. Not not many monks got into those monastic colleges, and the vast majority of individuals in Tibet, at least probably in India as well, did not were not educated. You know, they didn't go. You know, we all go to college, basically, or at least through high school. And uh, so we're much more apt to to gravitate towards these uh, very intriguing intellectual understandings of emptiness and interdependence and uh, what's the nature of reality and so on and so forth. Um, and, uh, and, and then by doing that, become sort of dissociated from the embodied relationship to the Dharma and the suffer, you know, relationship to suffering and our, our uh, um, embodied quality of manifestation. Whereas in the East, they're like the opposite. They're just like really rooted in their, their physical existence. And so the teachings are, are, uh, by, are very much like pushing them in, out into this further intellectual understanding realm. And, uh, I think you hit on it there when you were talking about, you know, what people are rooted like. This is what it's. I almost think it might be more of a modernist problem that like people that don't work with their bodies and don't relate with nature are the ones that are likely to really spin out because it's a lot easier when you don't have you know if it's like if you have to dig a hole if you have to plant a field, you know, that's it's very concrete. It brings you back over and over again. You yeah. might, you're not, you know, you're not going to think that it's illusory for 30 seconds and then just like, you know, go into a hole, like go into a well of, and where you can't get out of that because you got to, you know, pull up the next, you know, uh, whatever onion or out of the ground or something, you know, you just got to keep going. And in order to survive, you got to plant the fields, you know, you got to do all this stuff. Very, very, uh, the axe or whatever. And yeah, it was interesting. Uh, I've been taking these this uh, series of sessions uh, with this woman, Elizabeth Callahan. Uh, Cynthia's in this too, on Mahamudra teachings by this uh, very advanced Mahamudra text uh, uh, called uh, Moonbeams of Mahamudra. And there was one part in it where he talks about... Um, <clears throat> Um, working with the mind and working with the obsession with thoughts and and, and going beyond thoughts and uh, there was one place where he uses this like very violent language of like cutting um, uh, cutting through to provoke like an intelligence to provoke clarity and sharpness of understanding in order to in order to experience understanding one has to like really provoke it with this sharpness 
And uh, we all were sort of like, wow, that's like really violent compared to what we're used to in the West. It's all sort of like, well, relax your intellectual mind and, you know, let go of thoughts. <laughs> and and she, she expressed a similar sentiment that uh, even in discussion with her teacher, who was a, uh, this uh, Tibetan, traditional Tibetan teacher, that Tibetans... Uh, um, their their minds are not uh, as sharp, sort of, not in in terms of their capability, but just sort of like the day to day way they operate, and so they need like a really sharp push to uh, rouse their intelligence, and so that's why this text has like these sort of violent language describing these uh, the way to meditate, whereas we're all used to you know, letting go of the discursive mind and just relax it because we're also just totally churned up all the time in our minds. But. Yeah, I was going to say too, I think here in the West, we're very into our emotions. They're kind of like, um, yeah, you know, we want to explore our emotions much more than I think they do in the, in the East. Yeah, it's sort of. It might be that we're sort of dissociated from our emotions and mm. want to like get back in touch with them. Whereas in the East, they're like very in touch with them already. I, I don't know. Mm. But for me, the, there was one interesting part of the notes was that the the teachings of Maitreya and Asanga he classifies as Abhidharma. I don't know if anyone else was surprised by that, but I I found that quite interesting. Anyway, <laughs> not something that st sticks out for most. Anyway, uh, there's some like sporting event tonight or something, right, that everybody's watching. It's like yeah. one of those football games where there's nobody in the stadium or something. <laughs> cut out cardboard things. So I, I know I'm dying to go catch the, the last quarter of that and see who's. It's not The Apprentice. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Anyway, we should probably end. So it's been nice seeing you. And uh, next next week, what do we? Next week we start to dive in some of the more, uh, I, I think, a little bit more interesting stuff. The tenants. And now I'm going to circulate a couple of uh, a few pages from this other book that I showed you called Buddhist Philosophy, which is a, a Galupa. Um, presentation of the tenets of the different schools and the the translators give a very nice introduction where they they have these very helpful little chapters of like what are tenets what are buddhist tenets what are the buddhist schools and so i'll give you a few more pages to read it's not many anyway let's conclude by dedicating our merit <clears throat> By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. Who said what? What did he say? That was our attorney. What did he say?
He said, may all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> Thank you. Have a good evening. Good luck. See you soon. Take care. Thank you, Derek.